Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 98. Before we get into today's question, big thanks to our sponsors. First we have Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration make electrolyte products that you can match to your sweat sodium content uh, because everybody loses a different amount of sodium in their sweat. And also when you combine it with the fact that people have different sweat rates, it means that the actual absolute amount of sodium lost in your sweat can vary quite significantly. Precision Hydration help you with that through their products, but also with their free online sweat test that uh, you can take to in a few minutes get a free hydration plan for both training and racing. And you can also get 15% off their electrolyte products with the promo code thattriathlonshow15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. And they originated in the project of uh, building the world's fastest wetsuit. And uh, I love the Roka wetsuits. I own three of them, uh, the Maverick X and now Maverick X2, and also the Maverick MX, the Max Buoyancy wetsuit, which currently I use for a lot of my training. Uh, the great thing about all the Roka wetsuits is that they have their patented arms up technology in all of them, from the entry-level Maverick Comp all the way up to the flagship Maverick X2. And uh, so they have options for all budgets. Uh, and if you want the fastest wetsuit possible, uh, obviously you should go for the X2 because it is ridiculously fast. You can feel it as soon as you get in the water with it. But all of their wetsuits are of really great quality. So chances are you will get feel really fast in the water no matter what wetsuit you're coming from almost, even if you choose uh, one of the non-Maverick X2 wetsuits. You can check out Roka's products and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now on to today's question, which is from Alex. Alex, I don't know, know where you are from, but just a reminder to all listeners sending in questions. Uh, please let me know where you're from because I do like to introduce you, even if it's just a country uh, or the country and the, the city is more than enough, but it just adds a little bit of personality to the questions. Either way, Alex writes, Hi there, Michael. I'm a big fan of your show. I'm mostly a runner, but also a cyclist, and I'm now becoming more tempted to try triathlon. I recently got a stress fracture, and after looking in detail around the cause, we now realize it is due to a REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport. I loved your podcast with Dr. Margot Mountjoy on this topic, but I have a question about calculating daily calorie needs. I have heard many mentions about 45 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass at around 63 kilograms and 7% body fat measured from a DEXA scan. That for me means getting around 2,600 calories per day before any exercise. However, when I use uh, resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate calculators online and account for a sedentary lifestyle outside of sport, it puts me at approx approximately 1,900 to 2,000 calories. This seems like a big difference to the 2,600 calories that uh, a 45 calorie per kilogram of fat-free mass of energy, good, great energy availability would indicate. I was wondering how you and your athletes go about uh, using this information. I have tried the top end of energy intake since my injury, but I find it so hard to get that many calories in per day as I average about 
1500 uh, calories of exercise a day which means getting in 4000 plus calories of food every day we'd love to hear your anecdotal and scientific thoughts i think it's a very important topic that needs to be spread awareness of as i fell victim of this accidentally many thanks for everything you do Uh, the show is completely brilliant all right thank you alex so much thank you for the feedback on the show obviously and thank you for a great question Uh, Just before I start with giving my specific answer, just to point out to listeners not familiar, obviously Alex is familiar with the episode that I did with Dr. Margot Mountjoy, but that really is the episode that I would steer any listener interested in learning more to go and listen to. It was back in episode 233, so not that long ago. Dr. Margot Mountjoy is a world-leading expert on REDS. Uh, I'll link to the episode in the episode description, or you can just scroll up through the TTS archives in whatever podcast app you're using. Definitely worth listening to. And another resource that I'll also link to is the IOC uh, consensus statement on REDS, which uh, has Dr. Mountjoy as the lead author, but she wrote that paper together with many of the greatest experts in the field. So that's definitely, if you want to really get into all the details and the science and so on, go and check out that consensus statement. Now, let's start by defining energy availability, which uh, in the context of uh, REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, as you can hear from the name, is the basis for calculating your caloric needs. So it's not resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate. When we're talking about preventing REDS or REDS, we are really talking about making sure that you are not in low energy availability. So energy availability is defined as your energy intake in calories minus your energy expenditure in calories. And then you take that caloric number, whatever is left, and you divide it by your fat-free mass in kilograms. So if you use Alex's numbers that he provided here, 63 kilogram body weight and 7% body fat means a fat-free mass of 58.6 kilograms. And uh, if we use some example numbers, let's say, Alex, that you take in on a particular day 3,500 calories, and as you say, you spend 1,500 calories on training, let's uh, subtract those two numbers, 3,500 minus uh, 1,500. That is 2,000 calories uh, of energy available uh, beyond your training. We subtracted uh, the amount that your training uses up. So that is your energy availability, but we still need to normalize that for fat-free mass. So we take 2,000 uh, divided by uh, 58.6 and we get 34 uh, calories per kilogram of fat-free mass per day. That is your energy availability. And that puts you quite close to the threshold of 30 uh, calories per kilogram fat-free mass per day, which is generally cited as the threshold for low energy availability. Now you're still above it, so it doesn't necessarily mean that being at 34 is completely wrong for you. It could be completely sustainable. Uh, this is something we'll get into in a little bit, that 45 is cited as uh, as a common number, but it's not necessarily true that everybody should be at exactly 45 obviously that's not how things work in physiology generally with how our bodies work so let me read a little bit from the ioc consensus statement and figure out where that number of 45 kilocalories uh, per uh, kilogram fat-free mass comes from 
So the paper reads, rigorously controlled laboratory trials in women have shown that optimal energy availability for healthy physiological function is typically achieved at an energy availability of 45 calories per kilogram fat-free mass per day. Meanwhile, although some caveats are noted in relation to differential responses of various body systems, many of these systems are substantially perturbed at an energy availability of less than 30 calories per kilogram fat-free mass per day, making it historically a targeted threshold for low energy availability. And uh, then it also notes that uh, in addition and notwithstanding differences across body sizes and a pubertal age, it is noted that an energy availability of 30 uh, calories per kilogram fat-free mass roughly equates to the average resting metabolic rate. So that last point actually about resting metabolic rate is quite interesting. With your numbers, uh, Alex, if we use a resting metabolic rate, I think you said basal metabolic rate, which is a bit lower than resting metabolic rate. But let's use resting metabolic rate and let's use 1900 that you have from one of the calculators. That would put you at an energy availability of 32 if you were to just meet that 1900 calorie daily intake plus uh, obviously meet any exercise requirements. So yes, you would be just above low energy availability and maybe you would be fine there, uh, but certainly you are at the low end and especially with now having had a stress fracture a stress fracture generally is uh, a risk factor for future stress fractures so you might want to stay away from even getting near that threshold of 30 but getting back to the main point there which was the number of 45 calories per kilogram fat-free mass per day uh, it says that it is uh, noted as a target for optimal healthy physiological function in women so first point to note there, how this applies to men, I'm not sure. I'm not aware of any uh, particular evidence on that. I imagine that men might be able to achieve optimal health, so that actually the the ideal, the sweet spot for men might be a bit lower than for women. Uh, that's just me speculating, of course, but the reason that I'm, that I'm speculating about that is, the, of course, that the uh, reproductive system in women and perhaps some other differences in our physiologies presumably presumably means that uh, they would have slightly higher energy demands for optimal function. Now, to move on to the question about uh, why there is such a difference between the resting metabolic rate calculators and uh, the optimal energy availability of 45 uh, calories per kilogram fat-free mass per day, let me first say that I am by no means an expert on this subject, and again, I will be speculating a bit here. But I think part of the reason is probably that these calculators that we use uh, assume higher body fat percentages and perhaps significantly higher body fat percentages than most endurance athletes have. So they underestimate the fat-free mass relative to body weight, which is the functional tissue, the tissue that requires a significant amount of energy to keep up all of its vital functions. And another part that is probably overlooked could be the thermic effect of food. Uh, when we eat, there is a certain amount of energy required to actually process and digest that food. And for endurance athletes who eat a lot and often, at least if you're anything like me, then we will have a higher thermic effect of food on a daily basis. So calories will be spent just simply processing and digesting our energy intake. 
And if you eat a diet high in protein and carbohydrate, this effect will be exacerbated as those macronutrients uh, are higher in thermic effect, with protein being the highest, actually. Uh, but uh, I don't think that that many endurance athletes are on a really high protein diet. That's usually not recommended. Uh, you want to get in what you need, and that's it. Uh, but either way, a lot of athletes might be on a on a, quite a high carbohydrate diet, and which has a significant thermic effect compared to fat, for example. And that means that actually you will probably be using a lot of energy just digesting and processing your food, which isn't taken into account in the exercise. And also it really depends on how much you're eating in general. So it's not taken into account in the resting metabolic rate either. So so that's potentially a big factor. We, we could be talking about, uh, I don't know, I don't want to speculate, but we could be talking about significant amounts of energy here. I'm sure there are more factors than these two, but uh, it would have been a great question to bring up with Margot during the interview, of course, but maybe I'll get the chance to talk with her and ask that question another time. But now on to your main question, how do I, me and my athletes do this? Do we use online calculators? Do we use 45 uh, calories per kilogram fat-free mass as a target? Let's start with my athletes. And uh, just to be clear, I'm speaking for myself here. Uh, the other scientific triathlon coaches might do things differently. I do not know. So this only applies to me specifically uh, as a coach. I don't really discuss the day-to-day -day nutrition uh, with my athletes uh, much, uh, to be honest, unless there are any specific issues or there are questions that come up or uh, those sorts of things. Is issues might bring up the topic, of course. Questions, of course, I will answer uh, anytime there is a question. But it's not something that I push to discuss generally. I leave that to the athlete. Obviously, the basics are important. So it's something that we ask about in our scientific triathlon coaching onboarding form. We ask about what you typically eat during a day and so on. So we have a good idea of that. But, but it's not something that we then focus on unless there are specific reasons to do that. And most of my athletes are doing just fine when it comes to that day-to-day -day nutrition. So we really don't need to discuss it. Maybe I'll give them a reminder if we're entering a heavy training block or a training camp to ma make sure that you eat enough. But that's about as complex as it gets, really. Uh, I don't ask my athletes to count calories or give them targets or, or anything like that. This applies to day-to-day -day nutrition, uh, of course, and not necessarily to training nutrition, which is a whole different ballgame and the same with, uh, with racing. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's a general take on how we do things. Uh, so uh, so we really don't have a target of any specific energy availability. But if there is an issue, then of course we will dig deeper and figure out how to how to solve the issue. Personally, if uh, we go into that, then I used scale as my weapon of choice for making sure that I eat enough and get enough energy. I don't count macros. Uh, I will do that a couple of times per year. I will do it for a day or two. Uh, maybe three times per year would be good, but I really can bring myself to do that for that many times. Uh, but I weigh myself every morning and I want to maintain a stable weight. This is a super fast and easy thing to do. Counting macros, on the other hand, is very difficult and time-consuming. So, so for me, that's that's why why I use a scale and why I think it's so brilliant because it's so fast, easy, and convenient. Uh, 
And sometimes it happens that I might notice that I have dropped a little bit of weight on two or three consecutive days. So suddenly I'm a bit lower than where I want to maintain my weight around. And then I may just make sure that I eat extra on that day to gain the weight back simply. And I know that this is something that you might remember me asking Margot about in the interview. And she didn't really like the idea of weighing yourself every single day. Uh, I think because of how that might be a trigger for athletes with a propensity for disorder eating. I fully understand that uh, perspective. To me, uh, when I'm without my scale, though, it's very difficult to make sure I eat enough. Uh, so uh, that's something that actually very recently when I uh, went to visit my family in Finland, uh, I suffered from actually a few days of really poor performance in training. And in the end, it came down to me not having eaten enough because I didn't have a scale there <laughs> at my parents' place. So, uh, and then eventually got a scale and managed to bring my weight back up and my performances started to come back again. So that that's really how I do it personally. And uh, I think that's a simple system, uh, but it's difficult to break, which it's, which makes it a great system. So, so those really would be the things I would, I would recommend if you want to follow what I do, then I think it works really good. I think that it can be very insightful to two or three times per year, take a day or two when you religiously count and track all your calories and macros to get an idea of where you stand in typical training days in terms of how you eat and what to train and so on. And those insights and learning about what the food you eat contains, you can carry with you for a long time and it will give you a good idea of how much energy you're taking in even beyond that when you're not actually tracking anything but you will have a better understanding of what your food contains so it will be easier to to maintain uh, an energy a good energy availability now there are obviously some caveats to not really shooting for a specific energy availability target and actually tracking that you achieve that I've heard of case studies of, I think, on a recent Science of Ultra podcast. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was with Trent Stellingworth, actually. Uh, very worth subscribing to Science of Ultra, by the way. Great podcast, great interviews, great guests. Uh, I think it was Trent Stellingworth that said that he had seen people maintain a, st a stable body weight, uh, but were in severe low energy availability. So it can't be used as the one and only tool. You need to use some subjective and objective health and performance markers as well. And if you take a look at the IOC consensus statement that I linked to, figures one and two, then those will tell the most common uh, ob health and performance markers that might suffer if you are entering a state of low energy availability of REDS. So you should use those sort of personal subjective and objective ratings alongside maintaining the stable weight to make sure you are in energy availability. For example, let's say you start to notice increased irritability, decreased capacity to concentrate, and decreased endurance performance with no obvious explanation. Those are all different uh, potential causes uh, or sorry uh, consequences of uh, REDS. So it might be a cue to take a look at how much you're actually eating and expending. And uh, for you, Alex, the stress fracture was obviously another one. A low bone mineral density or uh, bone stress injuries are one of those consequences of, of REDS. And that's, as you noticed, uh, a trigger, a cue to take a look at what you're eating and making sure that you're getting enough. For female athletes, uh, the big one, obviously, is change, changes in menstrual function. Uh, that's the, the big one and usually the first one that shows that something is up. 
I can give a very recent example from one of my athletes where we actually did have to go deeper because something was off. And uh, this happened actually uh, this very day as uh, by the time that I'm recording this. So the athlete has been working with a nutritionist for a month or so and uh, an experienced nutritionist paid her good money and she had access to all his training uh, through his training piece account so she could take all the training into account and it would be very easy to get good estimates of energy expenditure through those uh, training prescriptions that I that I had given him. But uh, last week, the athlete started feeling uh, a number of symptoms, tiredness, lack of motivation, mood changes, and so on. And uh, at first, we didn't know at all uh, why it was. Training hadn't really changed. It, if anything, it was easier. But then just today, he sent me a message saying, I think it might be the nutrition and uh, then a screenshot of the daily calorie numbers that the nutritionist prescribed him. And it was around 3,300 calories per day, which includes uh, the energy needed to fuel his exercise. Now, I also should mention that this athlete is very muscular and athletic in terms of his build with a high fat-free mass. So basically, if we used 45 calories per kilogram fat-free mass per day for him as a target then he would need actually to consume 3,300 calories before any exercise. Now, this athlete trains 17 to 19 hours per week usually and averages probably on the very, very conservative side to 1,250 calories of exercise energy expenditure per day. Probably, I would say, more like 1,500 or even a bit more. But we used uh, 1,250 calories as a very conservative estimate and that puts him at around 28 calories per kilogram fat-free mass, so well below the threshold for low energy availability. And this, of course, explained to us in no unclear terms why he started to feel really bad really, really quickly. Quickly, Does this mean that we have to always know uh, the calories and make sure that we get closer to that 45 number? No, not at all. Uh, it comes back to simply having a system that works for the individual athlete. And here we will need to see what works. Maybe we can use a simple system like just focusing on maintaining weight and keeping an eye on health and endurance markers. We will see. Uh, but uh, either way, uh, this was what happened here with the uh, massively reduced performance, motivation, and so on. A lack of uh, motivation to train was really a big one as well. This really was a trigger to look into what is the reason for this. And it turns out that it was the low energy availability. So when these situations come up, that's when you might need to really dig into your numbers and your nutrition and and get, get a better idea of what you're actually consuming. If you want to lose weight, uh, that's obviously a bit tricky. There's a fine line between being in low energy availability and actually having the caloric deficit needed to cause a weight loss. That's not the, the topic of this Q&A, it's, and it's not in your question either, Alex. So let's just leave it quickly at you want to make sure that your caloric deficit is small. In the region of uh, around 300 calories per day is a common, uh, commonly cited rule of thumb. And you want to make sure that you lose weight slowly. So 0.5 to 1 kilogram per weight or 1 to 2 pounds, uh, sorry, per week or 1 to 2 pounds per week. And I would say here that uh, based on both personal and athlete experience uh, from my athletes, that 0.5 is probably safer and better than losing 1 kilogram uh, per week. 
how you achieve this uh, can vary maybe you work with a good nutritionist maybe uh, you do track your calories for a limited time or maybe you just use the scale and again try to make sure that you manage a very slow rate of weight loss by by using the scale on a daily basis either way keep in mind that going over the edge and uh, or under the limit for energy availability uh, low energy availability that that is and reds will set you back way way more than the potential gain of some weight loss could bring you forward so don't take any unnecessary risks uh, it's the old adage of better stand on the start line slightly overweight and undertrained than slightly underweight and overtrained and it is very very true uh, so uh, keep that in mind if weight loss is your goal uh, that's not to say that you can't uh, obviously do weight loss but you need to balance that carefully and manage that carefully Finally, just a couple of notes specifically around how low energy availability is related to stress fracture, uh, stress fractures and bone mineral density. And here I'm just basically citing information straight from the IOC consensus statement. First, there are plenty of studies that show how low energy availability and uh, amenorrhea in female athletes lead to decreased bone mineral density, a decreased bone turnover and increased risk for stress fractures. There are studies in both men and women that show how low energy availability, even in the very short term, negatively impacts bone turnover markers. In both men and women, there are specific sports that are at increased risk of low bone mineral density compared to other sports. And these sports are jockeys, runners, swimmers, and cyclists. No mention of triathletes, but the running, swimming, and cycling part is a bit ominous, I think. So maybe we should, we should be careful here. Very low BMI, lower than 17.5, and uh, rapid weight loss are also both associated with increased risk of low bone mineral density. And finally, in both men and women, when several of the factors low energy availability, disorder eating, menstrual dysfunction in women, and low bone mineral density are present, then the risk of stress factor is increased. So the more of those the risk factors you have the higher the risk of stress fracture itself becomes thank you for your question alex uh, i totally agree we need to raise awareness increase awareness of this topic and uh, the issues that it causes so happy to contribute to that by doing this q a episode and i hope that you found the answers helpful as well and that you have a fast recovery from your stress fracture that's it for today. Keep sending in questions and uh, let me know where you're from, your nationality. Uh, if nothing else, uh, when you send them in, you can send them to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K or go to the contact page on scientifictriathlon.com. You can find this Q&A and all previous Q&As on scientifictriathlon.com and you can also find information about our training plans and coaching services, which I really recommend that you take a look at if you're looking to improve your triathlon performances. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test and get a personalized hydration strategy for training and racing. And use the discount code DEATHTRAFFLONSHOW15 to get 15% off your order. And thank you to Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, dry suits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order with a discount code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.